You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, amen. It's good to be back together again. I've been gone a couple of weeks. So two weeks ago, I had the privilege of preaching at the Redemption Hill Church Plant Covenant Service, which was really great. And then I was gone this past Sunday to a conference, and here we are uh, back together again. Let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to our text for this morning, which is Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. It's another real um, milestone for our church this morning because we are completing another book of the Bible. As you know, if you're here for any amount of time, we, we tend, not all the time, but we tend to preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, which is a challenge in and of itself. And it's challenging. This has been a challenging book in Amos. And so here we are coming to the end. We're actually going to begin next week, though, another challenging book of the Bible, as we'll work for probably about a year through the book of Revelation. So we're looking forward to that and praying that God will continue to uh, give us wisdom and truth and make us glad as we consider what he says in his word. So this morning we're coming to the very last few verses of Amos, uh, this wonderful book that we've been in for quite a while this morning. And we have the privilege of bringing this together in such a beautiful way as the Bible does to see what God's ultimate intention is for his people. And so I have titled this message this morning at the end of Amos, Life After Judgment. We've been through the book of Amos for quite a while, and we've seen nine chapters of, for the most part, uh, pretty heavy, a kind of, kind of, a, kind of dark, uh, difficult truth about the discipline and the judgment of God, and now we are coming to the end to see what His ultimate intention is in all of it. So let me pray once again as we, uh, as we have an opportunity to thank God for the time that we've spent here, and we want to bring this to a close in a way that, that honors Him. So let's pray. Father, thank You for this book of Amos. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who continually leads us into all truth. We pray this morning that you would bring us to this conclusion, to our gladness and to your glory as we consider your ultimate intention for your people, uh, your people among whom you have grafted us in. And so we pray this morning for joy. We pray this morning for comfort. We pray this morning for truth and boldness as your people going forward. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We begin this morning with a classic question. I'm sure you have been asked before. I'll ask you again this morning. If you could speak to anyone in the world today, who would it be? Think for just a moment. Anyone in the world, if you could set an appointment and spend uh, 30 or 45 minutes with that person, who would you want to meet? Who would you want to talk to? You have that person in your mind. I've often thought of this question and uh, come to conclusions at different times in my life of who I would like to meet and who I would like to speak to. And as I've thought about that question, I've also found that that question really doesn't go far enough. So I want this morning to push that question just a little bit farther and ask you, why? Why do you want to spend 30 or 45 minutes with that person? As I think about that question, I find that there are really only three possible answers. And the answer that we give says a lot about who we are. It says a lot about our intention in the world. The first possible reason, which I think is probably the most common, it's the one that comes most probably naturally to me when I think of wanting to spend time with just anyone uh, in the world that I could, and that is because I think that they have something for me. They have some blessing for me. They have some, something that they could tell me that I don't know. Isn't that the, the normal sense that you have when you think of, of meeting anyone in the world? Or, or maybe even if you thought of anyone in history, you think, oh, I would like to speak to them because they could give me this. They could help me understand life better. They could bless me. Well, there is another reason. I think it's the second of the three reasons. And it's another one that comes pretty naturally to me. 
And it is quite the opposite. It is because I would really like to, this is going to sound hard, but it's true. I would really like to curse them. If I could just have 45 minutes with that enemy of mine, if I could just have 45 minutes with that person in the world who, who, who is causing so much trouble and is, is troubling my life in so many ways, oh, I would let him have it. I would tell him the way things ought to be. I would set him straight or set her straight. That's a natural way to think. But very seldom do I come to the third option, and there are only three. And that is, I want to bless this person. Those first two options are the ones that come most natural to us, and the third is, is probably most unnatural. And I think that's even uh, borne out by the reality that typically when you think of that one person, you're thinking of someone elevated. You're thinking of someone who's, who's high and well-known, someone whom it would be an honor to meet. Because the third option doesn't come naturally to us, we often don't think of people who are low in the world. Those who, who might need some extra help, that, that I might be able to bless them. I might be able to encourage and help that person. You see, our answer to this question really does say a lot about who we are and says a lot about our hearts. But I want you to see something even more important as we bring the book of Amos to a close is that the answer to that question says a lot about God. It's the question of ultimate intention. It's what his ultimate intention is in the world. What is his disposition toward the world, his disposition toward his people? Well, as we look at all of Scripture, we see God revealing his heart and his ultimate intentions for his people. And as his people, we want to understand that. We want to, to delve in, dive in, press in to what his intentions are for us. As we see this morning, his intentions for you, if you belong to Christ, his intentions for you, if you are among his covenant-keeping people, those who know him by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, according to what is revealed in Scripture, is this. It is life. His ultimate intention of all that he's been doing in your life is to give you life. Now, we are in a predominantly Jewish neighborhood right now where uh, some of us live and where our, our church meets. And we know that as uh, we get to know our neighbors, there are certain uh, beautiful principles and concepts that actually are, are grounded in the, the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. One of those that, that I find to be so important and, and even something that we ought to think more about as Christians today, is this concept of shalom. Often as I'm around town and you can see uh, some of who our Jewish neighbors are when they're out on the street, and, and this is a common blessing or a common uh, statement to make to another Jewish person, is shalom. It's a wish for them. It's a greeting. But it's far more than just a simple word that means peace. It goes far beyond the wish that you would have peace in your life. It's a wish for ultimate peace. It's a wish for ultimate wholeness. When you hear someone say to another, shalom, and then back again, shalom, it is a wish for ultimate wholeness. Well, as we come to the end of Amos this morning, we get to see what God's ultimate intention is, and it is life. It's life that is full and rich and glad and fruitful, and we want to better understand that this morning, and we pray that it would cheer our hearts, that it would encourage us, that it would make us bold for Christ, and that it would make us glad and happy and kind this morning. Throughout the Christian life and throughout redemptive history, 
we often find ourselves questioning God's ultimate purpose for his people. But as we come to this text and so many others, seeing them through the lens of the gospel that God has given us, we see that this shalom, this peace is his ultimate intention. So this morning, I want us to see three marks of God's ultimate intention for his people. Let's mark these three intentions of God. Here's the first that God makes his people whole. I want you to look just at verses 11 and 12 as we consider this important intention of God as he is the God of life among his people. We know from scripture, we know from our own experience that God's people are broken people. You are a broken person. I'm a broken person. You and I are a mess when you really boil it down and look at our lives. You look at what goes on in our hearts and our minds, who we are as people in this fallen world. We are broken. We are certainly not whole. We're not all put back together yet again. We're broken in at least three ways, and as we've seen in Amos, even a fourth. The first way is that we are broken by the world. This is the first of that trio that was, has really been made uh, quite popular and, and helpful by the Puritans in Christian history, was this focus upon the Bible's teaching of the world, the flesh, and the devil, this trio of, of opponents upon God's people first being the world, the world system, the fallen world. We are broken because of the fallen world. We have fallen in all of us with the fallen worldly systems of injustice, elitism. Just as we've read about uh, so far in the book of Amos, the way that God's people then had, had fallen in with the world, living their lives in a way that was contrary to his revealed will, contrary to his character. We're also broken because of the flesh. This is a word that the Bible often uses to describe who we really are, our, our sinful fallen nature, the real person inside of us. Often it is referred to the flesh as we think about this flesh that will waste away, this flesh that is, it is so weak, it can do so little in this world. And yet, and yet the flesh drives us toward what we've read about in Amos, what we feel in our own lives, this desire for self Self-governance, self-preservation, self-preference. Those are the selves of the flesh. We're broken by the world. We're broken by the flesh. We're broken by the devil. We have a real opponent, a real enemy who is the accuser of the brethren, who is the tempter, who continually night and day tempts us on the basis of our flesh in the fallen world to, to pride and, and arrogance indulged. But we're even broken in a fourth way, one that has been quite evident over these months in Amos, and that is broken by the judgment of God. Because any time that, that God's people or others in the world turn against his ways, his opposition comes against them. When pride wells up in the heart and leads us away from his, his glorified centrality, his goodness in the world, the quest that he's given us to find our gladness in him, and we go somewhere else, he opposes us. He brings discipline. He brings obstacles. He brings pain. But he does it all for a reason. And for those who are in Christ for those who have received his covenant promises, he does all of this. He allows all of this. He even ordains all of this so that he might make us whole. This is the first promise that we read about here in verses 11 and 12 at the end of Amos. Listen to these words and hear God's intention in an incredible display of grace and mercy to make them whole. Keep in mind everything that they have been up to. 
up to this point. Think about every way in which they had scorned his reproof, ignored his discipline, and yet his covenant promises remain true and full. Listen to this. He says, on that day, I will raise up the fallen shelter of David and wall up its gaps. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. This is an incredible promise, the promise of wholeness. We see it here played out in all of these different ways. And just as you have seen in the previous chapters of Amos, comprehensive judgment and discipline. Notice how here we're reading about a comprehensive wholeness, a comprehensive restoration, a comprehensive rebuilding and putting back together and fixing what was broken. You see it first in that language of raise up the fallen shelter of David in verse 11. Using David as that, that patriarch within the line of, of God's chosen people, Abraham, down to Jesus, who is the ultimate fulfillment of all of his promises to his people. He says that he will raise up the fallen shelter. Sukkot. A Sukkot is a booth. And even here to mention our, our Jewish neighbors, uh, in mid-September every year, you will notice the celebration of the Feast of Booths, even in recent weeks as you've uh, maybe driven home from church and passed uh, one of the many synagogues in our town. You might have seen one of these booths or you saw it outside the synagogue or in someone's yard. And it was a, rem a reminder, this Feast of Booths, about how the people of Israel lived in shelters or tents on their way to Israel. And here we're hearing about how he will raise up the Sakat. He will raise up this shelter, this place, this, this dwelling. We've also read throughout Amos about the walls being torn down. You heard over and over again the threat about warring invaders and how Yahweh against his people would tear holes in their walls so that invaders could come in through the holes. He would take down their defenses. But what are we reading here? We're reading about restoration. I will wall up its gaps. We read throughout Amos about the the. the the destructive nature of judgment of those who would come against God's people, all according to his intention to bring them to this day, but nevertheless, that they would be brought to ruin. And here's the promise is that he would raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, he's bringing everything back together again. But even here in verse 12, we see a glimpse of something we so intensely believe in within our church. And that is God's global mission to save people from around the world. Notice what it says in verse 12, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom. This is a way of talking about the nations of the world, those who are outside of the nation of Israel, his chosen people those who are what we call Gentiles. Many, if not all of us, are Gentiles who by the gospel have been grafted into the nation of Israel, grafted into those promises. And so it's no wonder that this is a central part of the restoration of God's people according to his plan. This is shalom. This is where God's people are headed all because of his intention, all because of his promises. One of the astounding realities of Scripture, one of the astounding realities of Amos, which you're seeing right here, is the steadfastness of God's promises despite sin. We see that God is the ultimate, ultimate promise keeper. 
Friends, there are no promise keepers in this room but one, and that is the Lord himself. There's no one in this room who is a promise keeper, not even me. I don't keep my promises. I break them. I keep them when they're good for me. I keep them when they'll benefit me. I keep them when people are watching. But if you turn against me, I'm likely to break them. I'll cut you off. I'll send you away. That's the way I operate apart from Christ. But Christ himself, God himself, Yahweh, his promises are steadfast. His promises supersede and transcend even the sin of his people. It is glorious, incredible grace. And that's how they're able to be rebuilt again and again. Well, here's a question I often think about. Why? Why this way? Why so much fuss? Why so much trouble down through redemptive history? Why wouldn't God, who is perfectly capable of doing it, simply make a plan where there is no brokenness? Why wouldn't he make the plan just a snapping of his fingers and everyone is, is, is all secure in his glory and in his grace? There's no trouble, there's no fuss, there's no temptation, there's no falling, there are no ruins, there are no holes in the walls, there's no judgment or discipline. Why doesn't he do this? I have to tell you, I don't know. I don't know. But I think, I think it's because this way of unfolding history as we've been seeing it unfold ensures that people will see their utter dependence on him. It is his, his glory that we are in such desperate need of, and this way of operating in the world makes the most of that glory. It makes the most of our, our dependence upon him to fulfill his promises. It puts him on display. Because when you come to the book, the end of the book of Amos, you see God in his glory and in his grace unfurled, bringing restoration. At our house over the last, wow, probably year, almost a year, we have enjoyed watching a house behind us, which was previously a mess. It was uh, nearly condemned and worn down and broken down. We watched that house get torn down. Someone came with a bulldozer and took it down. We sat out there and watched it happen. It was an amazing sight to see. But then it's been amazing to watch week after week after week and to hear right outside our window the constant hammering and the sawing and the working on this house to watch it come together. I've often thought, what if that isn't the way that it worked? What if the builder just came over and snapped his fingers and up came a house? Well, that would be something, wouldn't it? But it wouldn't be quite the same something. It would deprive us of the opportunity of, of watching it come down, watching it go up piece by piece, watching the craftsmanship of all of the different tools going to work to put this beautiful house together. Well, God here is an architect. He has drawn plans, meticulous plans that he intends to bring to fruition. But he's not only the architect, we see that he's also the builder. He's also the renovator. He's also the restorer. And so I believe what he's doing is he's putting on display his greatness in the lives of these people. And he's putting on display his greatness in our lives. You and I often wonder why. Why does God do what he does? Why does he put us through, as we say, certain things? Wouldn't, be, wouldn't we be much happier? Wouldn't everything be much better if he just snapped his fingers? If he just eradicated all pain or hardship or trouble or temptation or any of that, he certainly could. But he doesn't do that. He has a better plan He's a plan that puts his glory and power on display in far greater ways. 
That's why this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10 has meant so much to me in those times. Listen to what Paul says. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, for our affliction, which occurred in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. Why? So that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Why does he sometimes bring us to what feels like the very brink of death? Why does he bring us to the point where we feel that we're burdened excessively beyond our strength? I can't go any farther. Why not just snap those fingers? Well, because he intends for us to trust in him who raises the dead. He goes on in verse 10, for who rescued us from so great a danger of death and will rescue us. He on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us. You know why texts like these in Amos exist to begin with? For that very purpose. So that you and I as his people would have markers in our history to look back and know that even though I feel as though I am burdened excessively beyond my strength to the point of death, you will deliver me. Your promises will stand. I don't need to trust in myself. I don't need to control my world because you control my world for me. The heart of the gospel is hope set on God who even raises the dead. And it couldn't be any more beautiful than that. It could not be any more astounding than that because we're not talking about the raising of the dead of mere mortals. We're talking about the raising from the dead of the Son of God himself. That is where all of this is going. That's, that's what all of this restoration is intended to show us is that God has a plan to restore and we know that he will do it through his Redeemer. We know that he has done it through Christ. In this broken world that we just read about in 2 Corinthians 1, you notice that the Apostle Paul does not seem to fret very much. Oh, how fretful we have become this year. You want to put one word on the Christian church in 2020, 2021, that's the word, fret. We've been fretting about everything. But this is not the example that we've been given in Paul. This is not the example that we've been given in Amos. It's certainly not the example we've been given in Christ. Instead, it's the example that we are to set our hearts on Christ, who is our hope, because he is the king of restoration. Here's our first use this morning of this text. I hope that you will write it down and consider it in your own life. It answers the question, what have you been made to do? Who are you? Who are we as a church? Well, we are people who have been and are being rebuilt by an architect, by a builder. And those who are rebuilt by him are called to be builders. Not fighters, not destroyers, not hardcore critics. We are called to be builders. That brings us to the second intention of God's purpose to give us life after judgment as he shows us here in the book of Amos. And that is that God not only makes his people whole, listen to this, God makes his people fruitful, abundantly fruitful. He is painting a future picture of a glorious reality of ultimate restoration. And it is not just the restoration of a structure. It's the restoration of an organism of a body, of a creation 
and that creation becomes fruitful yet again. Here in verse 13 and 14, Amos uses, God uses this agricultural metaphor for farming. He talks about a plowman and a reaper, a treader and a sower. And he uses these all for the express purpose of showing off what will be the future fruitfulness of ultimate restoration according to God's intention in his redemptive plans for his people. Notice verse 13, talking about days again and telling you to behold them. That means think about them. That means listen up and hear this and live your life according to it. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. When the plowman will overtake the reaper and the one who treads grapes will overtake him who sows the seed. When the mountains will drip grape juice and all the hills will come apart. This is a beautiful picture of fruitfulness and restoration. The plowman overtakes the reaper. This is a picture of of the plowman who is out in the field plowing and the reaper who is reaping. The plowman is taking over. There's so much work to be done. There's so much fruitfulness that he's overtaking the one who is bringing it in. He can't possibly bring the fruit in fast enough. In a similar way, you read about this, this grape treader in the process of making wine that the treader overtakes the sower. The seasons no longer have this gap in the middle where there's a break, there's a rest. They're catching one another. They're in this constant, abundant cycle of fruitfulness. See the beauty of this. How the hard work of farming culminates in the end of the fruit of the labors and they are abundant. You think about this overtaking language. This is the image of of, of two people on a road. One is in the lead position. One is in the follow position. And the follower passes by the other and takes the lead. It is where one triumphs over the other. What we're reading about in the book of Amos, what all of this has been set up to accomplish in the very end is to remind us again of the gospel. And in particular, the gospel truth that in the end, in God's plans, according to his intention for the world, according to his intention for you, if you're in Christ, is that mercy triumphs over judgment. That mercy overtakes judgment. We read about that in James chapter two, thinking about this incredible work of Christ on behalf of of sinners in the world. That while the whole world deserves judgment, our hearts are made glad to see that our God is a God who triumphs in mercy. That's how he makes us fruitful. That's how he restores us. He does it by mercy. It's a picture of God's glad intention, not to make us meagerly fruitful. It's not a meager fruitfulness, but an abundant satisfaction in his plans. Listen to this in verse 14. I will also restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they will rebuild the desolated cities and live in them. They will not just rebuild the cities, they will live in them. It's the announcement of good news, which is the announcement of life. This is the word of the gospel. The announcement of the gospel, which follows that that dark announcement of the law, is live. Judgment says, do this and live. The law says, if you keep my commands, if you follow all the rules, if you do what I say, if you make sure you're like me in every way, then you will live. That's bad news. That's terrible news. It's terrible news for me because I haven't done any of those things. 
Therefore, I inherit death. The law, therefore, drives me into the dirt of the ground. I have no hope. I have no way out. I have no way to satisfy God. I have no way to be glad in him. Not until, not until the word live comes, because that's the word of the gospel. The gospel, as we say routinely in our church, is, is not something that we do. It's not another law. It's not a command. It's only good news with no mixture of bad news whatsoever. What does the gospel say to people who are driven into the dirt by judgment and law? It says live. It says done. I have done this for you. I grant you life. And that is the glad intention of God. He gives us life after judgment. His mercy triumphs over judgment. And in the same way that the ultimate builder has redeemed for himself under builders who represent him in the world, who are those who are, who are going through the world with his gospel hope as instruments in his redeeming hands to build up in Christ. He also... He also has called us to be glad givers of fruitfulness, announcers of gospel good news, announcing life. You know, when we think about the Christian life, we can talk about it in a lot of different ways. Sometimes those ways are complex, and sometimes it takes a lot of thinking, but there are other ways that we think about the Christian life. There are ways that the Bible brings it down to earth for us in simple ways. And this is one. Why has God saved you? Why has God saved me? What are we doing in this world? What are we to be doing? Well, we're to be doing what we saw our God doing for us. Triumphing over judgment, majoring on mercy, announcing life, preaching this good news as good news to make the nations glad, to make people all around us glad, to make our own hearts glad, even to make God, even to make God glad. Is that what you're hearing from the church? Is that what we're hearing in, in general? Take the whole picture together and sum it up. Is, is that what we're hearing from the church? You see, there are only two mentalities that you can have. Sometimes the church falls into a mentality that is a battlefield mentality in which the church sees life in the world and everything going on is ultimately a fight. That's what we've been hearing a lot about in the last year or two years. It's a lot of fight club talk. Everything is a fight. Everything is a war. Everyone is an opponent. But friends, I want you to understand and see, I need to understand and see that that is not the vision that our God has given us. He has not given the church a battlefield mentality. He has given us a mission field mentality in which we see the world not as a battlefield of wars to be fought and won, but as a mission field of souls to make glad. I often wonder what is the world seeing in the church right now? How are we coming off to the world? I fear that we're coming off as angry, demanding, policing people who worship an angry, demanding policing God. Is that the God we serve? We serve a mission field God. 
We serve a God whose ultimate intention is to triumph over judgment with mercy and calling us to do this beautiful work with him. Oh God, I pray for myself. Deliver us from sarcasm. Deliver us from this condescension, from this endless critique, and deliver us to the mission. Deliver us to the ultimate gladness that shows the world that God's people are glad people worshiping a glad God who is in ultimate control. He is not threatened by the politics of the world. He is not threatened by opponents or principles. He is with gladness working his plan of restoration among his people. And we have been made fruitful with abundant life, and we are called to announce life. That's the second use of our text this morning. If you're taking away this from Amos, this is what we ought to be doing. We ought to be announcing life. We ought to be mission field Christians whose major message is the message of mercy in Christ, welcoming the world to come. Come to our Christ because he is happy. He is in control. He satisfies souls. He condescends in an entirely different way. He loves. He's full of mercy, triumphing over judgment. Finally, we see this ultimate culmination, which we've been hearing about already this morning, and that is this, that God makes his people not only whole, not only fruitful, but something, if you can imagine it, even better than that, he makes them glad. What is God's ultimate purpose for you? What is God's ultimate purpose for me? It's taken me a long time to get there, and I'm still not quite there, but it has started to come home to me that his ultimate purpose for us is our ultimate gladness in him. That his ultimate purpose for us is a kind of rest, a kind of happiness, a kind of joy and satisfaction that the world would, would see and know nothing about, that we would be able to tell the world of this otherworldly happiness and joy that is found only in the all-satisfying God of mercy and grace, who even though his law is exact, and his wrath is intense, that yet he has poured it out on his own son so that we would be made glad and that he would get glory because his people are so happy to be in him. I'm persuaded that that is the ultimate intention of God in your life and mine. Notice last here that he restores their joy. And it's envisioned also by a kind of metaphor. And the metaphor is similar to what we read about earlier. It's wine and food. Listen to this in verses 14 and 15. We'll wrap up 14 and then end with 15. He says, I will also restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the desolated cities and live in them. And they will also plant vineyards and drink their wine, and make gardens, and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land, and they will not be uprooted again from their land, which I have given to them, says the Lord your God. Wine and food. Those are the pictures. Those are the pictures that are represented in Scripture of ultimate gladness. It is wine that makes glad. It is food that makes glad. It is satisfying. It is joy-making. It is heart-cheering. And that is how the book of Amos ends? It is incredible. This is not how you thought it would end. You read through nine chapters along with me, and this is not how you thought it would end. You thought it would end in final destruction where the God of judgment would say, that's it. Now, now I will defeat you. But instead he says, 
that's it. Now I will satisfy you. Now I will make you glad forevermore. That's what this is about. I remember being at a little concert one time um, of the group Mercy Me. You know Mercy Me. They sang the song of 40 million times. I can only imagine over and over and over and over again. It was amazing to me that that song could be worn out. I thought, surely this is the one song in history that will not be worn out. And then we really wore it out. I was at this concert and um, Bart, the lead singer, was, was telling a story during one of the breaks between songs. And he was telling a story because they were about to sing this, this song, Holy and Anointed One. And Holy and Anointed One has this line in it, your name is like honey on my lips. And he told a story that they were playing this song uh, for a youth group somewhere at one time. And uh, during one of the breaks of the song, uh, one of the kids came up to the stage and was trying to get his attention. And I kept annoying him and annoying him. And finally, he said, what, what do you need? And he said, I have a problem. I don't like honey. But it's okay. I changed it to barbecue sauce. Your name... It's like barbecue sauce on my lips. Well, this helps to illustrate what is the important response for us in a text like this. It's not about wine. It's not about food. It's about gladness. It's about what God is like on your lips that he is the all-satisfying God. He is the God that makes you glad. If that's barbecue sauce, it's like barbecue sauce. If it's wine, it's like wine. If it's like honey, it's like honey. But I'll tell you what it is for all of us. It is like grace. It is grace that satisfies. It's grace that changes people. And it's grace that lasts forever. Notice this in verse 15 as we come to a close. He says, I will plant them on their land. And of course, we know from the, the continually, continual revelation of God's plans that this is an ultimate future day and place where all of God's people will be grounded and there will be no sin, no temptation, no tears, no heartache, no disobedience, no judgment, no discipline. It will be a place of utter and complete grace. What has this book been doing? I hope it has been doing in me. I hope that it has been doing in you a work that would lead us to wanting the gladness of God more. That we would see the gladness and the grace of God more. That we would see his promises as he is the triumpher over judgment. And that we would do what we read about earlier in Psalm 34. Taste and see that Yahweh is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear Yahweh, you his saints. For to those who fear him, there is no lack of anything. The young lions do without. Even they suffer hunger. But they who seek Yahweh, the covenant God, will not lack any good thing. This is the picture of our ultimate destination. This is the, the picture of the, the ultimate revelation of our future in Christ, the one that we are looking to, the very reason why we can be so glad in this world, the reason why we can announce gospel grace so clearly and so fervently and so happily and so kindly to the world. It's because this is where we're going. And why are we going there? Well, you don't need me to tell you. You can read it. Because the Lord said, because he has done it, he has decided, he has worked everything necessary. And that's why this book ends the way it began, says the Lord, says the Lord your God. We want to be finally a people that are in tune with the promises of God. I hope that you're getting in tune with them along with me as you, you see the way that God has worked 
in this devastating book of nine chapters of relentless judgment and trouble only to bring about this ultimate life after judgment that begins by coming to Christ, that begins by becoming part of his covenant family. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you need to hear this. Maybe you need to repent of your sin and trust Christ who triumphs over judgment. You do not want his judgment. I assure you of that. But what you want is his gladness. And so our prayer is that many people who are here week after week, maybe they see something on the live stream or they come in contact with one of us out in, in our communities, our neighborhoods, our workplaces. They find happy people serving a happy God who is absolutely in control for his own glory and the gladness of his people. And they're saying, come on in. We want you to know Christ. We want you to join us. We're going somewhere. And next week, we'll look even more carefully at where we're going as we begin that incredible book of the Bible that ends our Bible. We thank God for that this morning. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks because you are the, the triumpher over judgment. You are the king of mercy, the king of grace. Oh God, I pray that you would Fill our hearts with ultimate gladness in Christ because of what you have done for us, because of your transcending love for us. I pray, God, that you would soften our hearts, that you would soften our, our eyes so that we would not be so fixed on the world and the things going on here. I pray, God, that you would give us a mission field mentality. Make us lovers not fighters. Make us those who trust in you, the king. We look forward, Lord, for this, this ultimate place that we will be because you've been gracious to us. And we pray that your promises will, will stick with us, they'll stick in our hearts, and that we'll, we'll be ever mindful of your faithfulness to us then, now, and forevermore. And we pray that our lives would be characterized by that life not judgment. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.